Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I've cried that many times. I've been angry that many times. I've spent so many lonely nights here going, you know, what am I doing? But I fell in love with him through the same way that you'd fall in love with anybody.
Our guest on Australian True Crime today is Ashley. She's a kind of woman we've all heard about and thought about many times, but we rarely get to hear from. A couple of years ago, Ashley started writing to men in prison. She fell in love with one of them, who happens to be serving a long sentence for double murder. Ashley joins us today to talk about her relationship with John, about the realities of courtship under the ever-present eye of corrections, and about her hopes for the future. We begin our conversation by talking about Ashley's background and her life before John. I'm your biggest goody two-shoes that you'll ever come across. I've, you know, the cops pull me up for an RBT and I don't drink and I'm I'm frightened. <laughs> That's kind of where I was at. And, you know, you're brought up that, you know, oh, crims go to jail and they should throw away the key and lock them up and there's a high expectation that you'll follow the law and that was me. And it still is. That, that hasn't changed. I'm still petrified of doing something wrong. I'm probably just a little bit more aware of, I guess, the thin line between being a goody two-shoes and being in jail because it really is such a thin line. Probably the only connection I had with, I guess, the criminal world was I had friends who had husbands in jail. When you first hear a story of somebody who's gone to jail, you're like, what? You know, what, what did he do? You know, how does it all work? And, you know, oh, my God, you stayed with him, you know? So I was that person. You know, even with those relationships, I was still, I was there for my girlfriends, not necessarily agreeing with their decisions to stand by their man, you know, or whatever. And probably opened my eyes a little bit too, that people that go to jail, you would never expect. Yeah, they're just people. That's it. When you decided to get into a relationship, because it's not like you were in a relationship and then your partner went to jail. That's right. Tell us about that. How did you get into this relationship? It was kind of along the same line. So again, my friends who had people on the inside will say, um, and you know, I was, I've been single for a long time. I've been married before. It wasn't great. So I was cautious about, you know, who I got involved with in my life. I, have, I had a son out of that first marriage and, you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, you put your kid first for a bit and try to heal and find out who you are and blah, blah. So I'd been single for a long time. It's a long story short there. And I was complaining to my girlfriend about the, uh, the cesspool that is online dating. It's funny because she thought that, that an improvement on that would be getting someone from jail to write to me. It is funny. It sounds crazy <laughs> to us. And when I tell people the story, I'm like, this makes no sense. I agree. And even at the time, I remember thinking, oh, she's, there's going to be some dude who's, you know, got caught with some crack on him or something and he, he was out part, you know. I had expectations of a small level, you know, he's in for six months, you know, bugger, I got caught. To be honest, I don't even know what I was thinking. I just thought, let's give it a go. Like it can't, honestly, could it be any worse than what I've experienced in online dating? So I was open to it. And the beauty of it is, is that you can just not contact them. So they'll write you a letter. And if you go, oh, you know, that sounds a bit sus or, you know, I'm not too keen on that, then I just don't write back. And there's nothing that they could really do about it. So I thought, well, that's a that's an avenue. Obviously, the other thing I was thinking about, like, I don't know what they look like. Like, I'm no oil painting. They don't know what I look like. Like, how does that, how will that progress, you know? Because I don't want to be going, oh, this guy sounds all right. And then he's, you know, got a head on him like a Smash bucket pie. of crushed crabs or something. Yeah. yeah. I understand a lot of what you're saying about your previous relationship as well and, and the healing period. And then it's like you only felt... Well, I'm putting words into your mouth, but it sounds like you felt safe 
communicating with men who were caged. That's a, yeah, you're 100 percent right. If you kind of delve down into the the depths of it, I felt safe. Like I didn't at any point sort of feel concerned about you know a convicted criminal contacting me via letter. I've been told that the letters are when there is chemistry. The letters are like incredibly romantic and that women will say, I've never had communication like that with a man before. Yeah. And the men will say, and people in the prison system will say, well, yeah, they've got nothing else to do. So they have the time and it's a great distraction for men in there to have something nice to think about and write about and all like that. So was that your experience? Definitely. Yes. And I think, um, cause we're, you know, there's various groups, I guess, support groups on Facebook and you get to know people. Uh, when you go to visits all the time and it's a balance too because a lot of the boys do use that as a manipulation you know they oh we, I need a parole house in six months you know to go back to that's safe you know so I'm going to put this lovey-dovey that I've never done on the outside in and you know draw pictures of us together you know so that happens that that's one aspect but then there's the genuine stuff where you know you do talk about uh, emotions and do you say get filthy I and bet. I feel sorry for the girls in that. Of course, because that is the other thing. In the office reading them. Oh, yeah. oh the girls have to read them all. Yeah. Yeah. Or guys. I mean, I'm being a, a, the assuming they're yeah. women. But the people, yeah, absolutely. So they read them incoming and outgoing to make sure there's nothing sus going on, you know, um, you know, setting up deals or something stupid. But yeah, so I do get a chuckle. But absolutely, they're, and like you said, there's, their only way of communicating other than very short telephone calls is by a letter. I mean, there are emails and things there, but they still have to physically write it, write their responses. So, you know, I guess letter writing in the very form that it is makes you kind of think about what you're saying and you, know, you sit with it for a bit and, and write. And I know John is very, he's not your typical blokey bloke. He's a real, like, I mean, on the outside, you certainly wouldn't think that, but very in touch with his emotions. Had he ever, like, written letters to anyone else before? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Um, Just filth. Just the most popular one is between the, the women's correctional facility. Oh. Yeah, the boys in write to the women in the... <gasps> okay, that makes sense. They're all, what are you going to, you're not going to judge each other, are you? You know, it's yeah. like, oh, well, I know you're in jail. It's not no surprise. So, so there's a pen pal system between the jails. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's usually just filth related. Great. But, you know, works both ways. Go nuts. So I guess in my circumstance, I had a little bit of an inkling of the situation because my friend who got her husband to hook us up, I guess, is John's co-convicted. So I knew what he had done. And when I say I knew, I kind of knew high level stuff because I never really pried, to be honest, you know, because it, it was quite triggering for my friend. So it was, you know, I knew what he was in for. But I didn't know the circumstances. So when I got the letter and I turned it over and I saw his name, I knew who he was just because, yeah, you know, I'd Googled stuff. <laughs> so I knew who he was and I just, I remember the feeling that I had when I got it and I was disappointed because I thought I can't, like I can't have that in my life. I knew he was convicted of double murder. Whoa. Yeah. As well as a string of, you know, I say small but you know it was like weapons charges and drugs drugs charges as well, well. compared to double murder yeah they are small that's right yeah, yeah it's it would have been nice if that was all he had john was the main perpetrator so he was the one who who shot the people uh and his co-convicted was kind of just along for the ride and that's how he got entwined in the whole mess so and they're still friends 
That says something. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's because they kind of, um, they probably stuck together, I think, because they were both first time in the criminal justice system for both of them. Who was he when this offence happened? What can you tell us about the offence itself and the lead up to that? So he was a happily married man with three girls, Gosh. three young girls, so teenage girls, yep. He come from a country town, you know, there's a local pot dealer that everyone knows, you know, that was him. The cops knew and it was just like, oh, that's just John, you know, he's, he's not making a killing out of this. And then he kind of just moved on and did his did the family thing. He had a business and stuff and the global financial crisis hit and basically lost everything. So his business kind of went down the tube and like a lot of people, I think, financially were struggling. But unlike a lot of people, he made a very stupid decision to get involved in the dealing of drugs in order to make some quick cash. So that's kind of how it all started. And look, like I said, he never had any, you know, he wasn't, a, he'd never been in prison before, you know, it might've been in a watch house one night or two for a couple of bust ups. But, you know, reading the transcripts, his wife was just like, he was just, you know, an amazing father and husband. And then he comes home one night and panic is ensuing. You know, it just went from normal family life to two people dead, oh my God. him and his mate fleeing the state. So John and his co-convicted had set up a, sorry, there was another guy as well. So there was three on this side, I guess you'll say, with, with John. And they'd set up a, um, a cannabis deal with a couple of, um, you know, I won't say big time drug dealers, but some other drug dealers from up north. Like it was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cannabis. And um, he just thought it was fishy. So he, he tried to call it off. You can't do that apparently midway. Threats started getting thrown around from the other side about, you know, I'm going to come and, you know, if you don't do this, obviously there's people expecting this delivery. Threats were made to to John's family and the co-convicted's family. So they've shown up to kind of, you know, do a bit of the deal. There's been a tussle and, you know, stupidly, uh, John took, you know, I look at it as John took a, a gun to a, a fist fight. So is he has he shown up to a meeting armed? Yeah. Okay. It sounds to me like a frightened, inexperienced dudes. Yeah, showing up, as you said, panicked and overreacting and um, shooting two guys. Ruining a lot of people's lives in the, in the process. Yeah, and then it, just, it really just went downhill from there. I mean, if it can go further downhill, it absolutely went further downhill rather than just, and I don't know what I'd do. It's hard for us to say, isn't it? Like, oh, I would have done this and that. It's like watching a movie, isn't it, where you spend your whole time going, don't go outside, you idiot. Yeah. And if it was us, though, what would we do? Would we hit the road? Would we run, try and yep. run away? Who knows? Yeah. So that's what they did. They tried to cover it up poorly. And and I think the reality, too, of what you've just done was full. Like, I've, I have read the transcripts, and that was part of kind of the deal, I suppose, of our relationship kind of progressing. Mm. And he's still a little bit not in denial, but has trouble admitting to himself what what happened. And not in the sense that he's not admitting that he did it. It was like, why did you do it? So the transcripts kind of go through from the the police point of view and all that sort of stuff. So they fled to interstate, obviously. I don't think they had a plan. And, you know, because they're a pair of dumb nuts, they got caught pretty quick. Uh, and it all happened pretty quick from there. They confessed almost immediately because what else are you going to do? I don't think there was really any other option to do that. One of the guys who 
actually was the instigator of the whole thing. He got shot in the leg, like, you know, I guess um, friendly fire, and he kind of turned crown witness. So they didn't really have a leg to stand on. So they kind of just went through the, the judicial process, I suppose, from there. But, it, I mean, it wasn't pretty. It was, you know, there was kids dragged into police stations for interviews, wives kind of finding out all this stuff for the first time. So it was scary uh, for them uh, and a long, arduous, stressful process. And that's absolutely not taking away the process for the victims' families. I can't even kind of pretend to comment that I know what they went through. I can only comment on kind of what John talks to me about. And, you know, it's hard to, to say I can imagine because I can't. It would devastate the victim's family and it has you know they had children and things like that as well and it's a tricky road to to cross sometimes because you know we're happy and we talk about our life together after all this and consciously in the back of my mind it's like we've we've always just got to remember that there's somebody who doesn't have that opportunity and and as much as I don't like to say it it's John's burden to carry yes not yours that guilt and that's not necessarily for me to to carry that burden Uh, But I I do a little bit, you know, because I don't want to be uncompassionate. Yeah, it was just really ugly and messy. And it it really broke my heart reading a lot of that stuff as well, uh, because a lot of the victims' families testified, obviously. And, you know, these people were just as as scared and inexperienced as the boys on this side. So you kind of think, how does it, you know, boys are trying to act tough and I don't know what it is, but... It did break my heart. So this happened back in 2009. So they were convicted in 2010. So they've been in jail since uh, 2009. Both of them have clung to the self-defence for a long time. Okay. And, you know, I'm not an idiot. You know what I mean? Like, I can, you can tell me that to your blue in the face, but what was the truth? And that's, that's been coming out. I think he felt very vulnerable to say that because for so long he'd been sticking to that you know it's I'm your wife or I'm going to be your wife at that time you know you've got to be honest with me because I don't need to know I'm safe you know that I'm not dealing with somebody who is you know this monster and so he has been coming around and that's been reflected in so he's classified as a low now which is rare for somebody on murder yeah so he's kind of started to open up to I don't know who they deal with inside whether they're psychologists or what but who do the classifications, you know, and, and kind of take that ownership and say what the truth was. You know, I, I was scared. I took the guns, willing to do this if it, if it came to that. And it did come to that. So we're getting there. And it's emotional because it's hard to accept, I think, that... Yeah, that you killed someone. He was capable of making that decision, yeah. Whether it was a two-second decision or a you know, a, a prolonged decision, but yeah, so we're getting there and that, and all with hopes that he can, you know, in society's eyes, make amends in some way uh, for what he's done. He's certainly not a danger to society in that respect, but there has to be, like you've kind of been talking before, there has to be a, a precedent set to other people that you can't do this and not suffer consequences for it. So sentence was 20 to life, so minimum 20 years. And obviously the top is life. So even if they do get parole, or sorry, I'll just talk about John because I can't comment on 
on where the other one's at at the moment. But if uh, John gets parole at 20 years, so that's about five and a bit years away, uh, he'll be on parole for the rest of his life. So he'll have those conditions till the day he dies. So what, what they are, we won't know um, until he gets it. If he gets it, he's in maximum and obviously for the, the charges. And he's actually been, I call him the teacher's pet because he really is. He's, all the guards love him because he's just, he's just one of those guys that helps, you know, all the jobs he does, he kind of, he takes them seriously. He never calls it, he never gets into fights. So yeah, so he's been what they'd call the model prisoner. He'll never be, you know, they've got the low classification farms and stuff. He'll, he'll never be allowed to them because of his charges. So he'll be in max until they let him out, essentially. Speaking of parole, do you know much about the victims' families in terms of, you know, I've spoken to lots of victims' families who get in there and, and lobby with the parole board and say no, no, and fight it every three years. Do you have an anticipation about what that would look like? I would say just um, they will be interested in providing how it's impacted their lives. And there wasn't huge animosity amongst a lot of them at the beginning. It was kind of like play stupid games, get stupid prizes, you know, this is the ultimate of, of that saying. But we still hate your guts because you did this yeah. to us. Yeah. yeah. So there's, it's kind of not like one of those real controversial ones where, you know, he should never be let out because he's a danger to the society, that sort of situation. Yeah. But I think that they'll absolutely want to ha- have their impacts heard. I don't know what he'll, well, how I'll cope if he doesn't get parole. Yeah. So in, the, in our minds, it's, you know, 2029. You know, January or whatever it is, that's his coming home day. And if it's not, then I'll address that on that day and we'll just keep going. But you can't, I think, and I think a lot of wives or girlfriends in this situation, the worst part is when they don't have, they haven't been sentenced. So they'll sit in remand or whatever. And even once they've been convicted, they still don't get a sentence for months and months and months. And that's the worst part. Like you can kind of get on with life a little bit when you know. At least there's a chance that they're coming out on on a particular day and that's what you cling on to. But especially since COVID, it's just put everything back oh. so far. Yeah. Still. So what did it do to visitation? It was horrible. It, it's only just like gotten back to normal. So previously, and I can't comment proof because we kind of met just as COVID broke out. So there used to be like you could mingle and there was like two-hour visits, but COVID kind of the kibosh on that so it was it was completely banned for a long time so we did a lot of video visits and then you know it was kind of you can come in for a contact visit in inverted commas but you weren't allowed to contact so you have to sit across from each other with a mask and and so you know sometimes you think why am I bothering because I can't hear what he's saying I forgot what he looks like you know you sit across a metal table you can't eat drink coffee nothing so it was pretty horrid but in saying that, even just sitting across the table, it's difficult to explain. Like, And people who've been in something like a long-distance relationship probably can relate. You know, at the end of that, maybe three or four weeks they're away, you're starting to kind of lose that connection a little. And so even just being in their presence just changes that all again and resets it. Even though, like, there's no intimacy or there's no, you know, dirty talk or anything stupid like that, you know, just being in the same room with them going, oh, yeah, that's right, you're alive and you're a human and I'm a human and, <laughs> you know, let's do this. So that was important and it was really stripped back. And I say it was important for us as visitors and me as a visitor, 
you know, it was probably 10 times more so for the, the boys inside. Oh, yeah, absolutely. To see you in the in person, it must have been amazing, in the flesh, I was going to say, and then I stopped myself for some reason. But <laughs> uh, it's funny how you, I don't know, this whole idea of men in prison and they're being locked up and not being allowed to touch people when they come in to visit, it does create this tension. It absolutely does, yeah. Even th- Thinking about it made me stop myself from saying in the flesh. Like it was like the tension of it yep. almost creates a danger or something. Does it feel tense when you go in? It does. I'm not going to lie or sugarcoat. It, every visit sucks. Mm. And until you're in that one hour bubble with your partner, it sucks because I'll, I'll call them screws just because he calls them screws. I'm so used to calling them screws. <laughs> No offence to them. I think a lot of them are really great and I have a bit of a banter with them. They are great, but they're under no illusion about, you know, what they're called. That's it. So the screws, they treat everybody like criminals. So, and I get it, like if you're dealing with it every day, but it infuriates me because it's like, I'm I'm not in jail. I haven't been convicted of anything. I'm here to see my loved one who, you know, is a human right, unless there's exceptional circumstances, they've got a right to do that. And I know that's, and I, even when I say that, I think, you know, he killed two people. Those people don't have a right to visit their family. Do you know what I mean? So I'm always conscious of what I'm saying. But yeah, but that is our system and, you know. It is. He does have a human right. That's it. Hmm. But, yeah, so it's not a great feeling. You know, you get, like I said, I'm a goody two-shoes, but the dogs, the sniffer dogs sat on me a couple of times, so immediately you're like a Colombian drug lord, you know. Oh, what are you hiding? You know, I'm like, dude, I, I wouldn't even know where to get drugs. So what happens? Do they search you or can they search you? What uh, no, they in those situations they will just put you on what's called a box visit. So it's kind of like those ones that you see in the movies where you're just a, a perspex screen or a big thick glass screen. So so there's no opportunity that if you do have something that you could pass it to them. So, But it's the stigma because then you're pulled out in front of everybody in the line <laughs> and quizzed and, of course, I'm a nervous wreck, you know, so I'll probably look guilty as... And so, you know, if you get through the dog, you've got to walk down and get x-rayed and all that sort of stuff and pull your hair out. And then they'd give you another drug, like an ion test, like the ones they do at the airport. So, and again, I've been pulled up a couple of times there for, for things like meth. And I'm like, how on earth have I got meth on my shirt? The only thing I think of is I stopped at the servo this morning. You know what I mean? So it could be. That's fascinating. So your clothes, you, but your clothes have tested positive for meth. That just says to me, I mean, I know that there's that much meth in Australia that, yeah, you've literally picked up some meth somewhere in your travels. That's it. Wow. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. So the the rule and all, and all the girls that go, oh, it's mostly girls, but all the people that go and visit, they know you wash your clothes that night, the night before, you wash your hair the morning of or the night before, you put your clothes on, you don't touch anything, you don't stop between home and <laughs> the prison when you're at the visits, you don't touch anything. You're washing your hands. All the, you, going to the toilet is like a gamble. I bet with your visit, and and yet still, people will get through that whole process and they'll get caught handing stuff over. Mm. You know, so they're not popular. Those people, I might just add, with anybody, <laughs> because they then ruin it for everybody. But yeah, it's it's just that anxious thing. You know, you haven't done anything wrong, but it, it doesn't matter. Some people have lost their shit to a degree because they know that there's a, a limit. But even just you know, they're just normal people like me who've, say, worn a shirt that they've worn six other times to visits. And then the supervisor on that day goes, you're not wearing that shirt in. 
because it's purple and purple incites violence, <laughs> you know. And so they don't have to have a reason. It's because they fall back on this thing that it affects the good order of the facility and they can just use that as anything. You can't do a damn thing. And if you complain to some, you know, be a Karen or whatever you want to call it and complain to the GM, then you just you just don't know how that's going to impact your loved one. And as sad as that is to say, it might, you know, they might just tip him from where he is now in his little relaxed world and put him back in the blocks and then it's it's hell for him just because you wrote a, a sternly worded email to the GM about their rules. So there's no there's no compassion. You you are just a you're visiting a crim after all. So you must you must be a bit of a bit suspect as well. Does he have other family support as well? Yeah. It has waned and understandably because, you know, fifteen years alone is a long time. So his parents come and see him regularly. They're getting older, obviously, so it's it's harder to come down and, and see him. Sister, and that's the same. It, it's a, And his girls are all grown up and they've got their own lives. So for them, I think just by chatting to them, it's difficult to go and see him mm. because there's a lot of mixed emotions, you know, abandonment, growing up without a dad or, or brother. It's upsetting to see them, you know, caged you know, walking in in their greens and walking back out, you know, like for them it's it's difficult. So it's just easier, I think, for a lot of them to just stick to phone calls and, and letters and stuff. There's shame as well, I think, particularly for the girls, you know, growing up being a teenager and having your dad go to jail and going through the trial and the media stuff and all of that, no matter how much you rationalise it and you love him and no matter how mature you are with it, it's still sh- shameful. Yep. Absolutely, and, and and you're mad at him. That's it, and that's I I completely understand that. Look, he's tried his best, I guess, <laughs> other than going to jail, mm. to kind of maintain those relationships. And it's probably taken me coming in the scene to kind of I don't want to take credit for it, but it's very naive about I guess the impact that he's had on the girls. I think you know he's like, oh, well, I'm ringing them every week. You know what? Why don't they just answer the phone? I'm like, well, there's probably all this other stuff. Mm from you not being around when they were teenagers. You know, obviously they went through it with their mum at the time. So can you imagine, I mean, and I know you can imagine uh, having been a single mum yourself, like the aftermath of all of that for her, like being a single mum with everything that comes with that, all the responsibility, the financial pressure, raising your kids alone because he's in jail and everything that goes along with that. I'd be filthy. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be filthy. so angry. I was angry when my ex-husband was at the pub after totally, work. You know? <laughs> totally. I mean, you get, just get so mad when you're left alone. And you just think what, you know, I always think she probably thought, why weren't you thinking of us? Absolutely. When you did this. Yeah. You know, well, you're too, too busy thinking about money and being the bad guy. You know, why weren't you thinking of us? And so that's, yeah, I get God, it. Yeah. Not enough is said about prison wives and the sentence that's imposed on them to try and raise kids of prisoners and however they choose to do that. Yeah, that's a really hard road. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Is there any such thing in Australia as conjugal visits? No. Well, I say that. that I've heard there is in Victoria under very strict circumstances. Uh, But in Queensland, no. There's no um, opportunities for intimacy other than the spoken word. We can sneak in a sneaky patch. Yeah. But you got to be quick because they'll be like, oh, you know, used to knock it off, you know, and then if you don't knock it off, you're out. So we'll have four screws now standing around when we walk in. There'll be like four surrounding the table to make sure you hug like this because you can't have your fingers together because you could be hiding something in your fingers. So you've got to hug them with widespread fingers above the waist so you can't do a little cheeky ass grab or, you know, there's no special circumstances where you can can get that off you know you couldn't write to somebody and say can we have a conjugal visit it's just not no it's not supported which is odd I I find it odd me too because I think certainly you know when there is I mean there is sexual assault in jail and there is sexual tension in jail and there are circumstances where guards are having sex with prisoners and all that stuff we know all of that oh absolutely well I tell you what there could be a solution and there's some quite famous criminologists who've said you know that that one of the pains of, of imprisonment is the lack of sexual interaction with their loved ones. I think it's supposed to be part of the punishment, but I think it's so unnatural that it actually then creates assault. It's quite detrimental. That's right. Assault, it creates not just sexual assault, but just, you know, men. Yeah. Tension. You know, one week and they're out of their minds. Yeah. yeah. And we're, like, we're not even allowed to wear shirts. Like it has to be a T-shirt basically, because we can't show shoulders because shoulders drive them crazy, I'll have you know. Right. So you can't, like, wear a singlet. You can't have, like, cleavage or ripped jeans, anywhere kind of, you know, have to have things below the knees. It's like it is visiting the nunnery, essentially. Yeah, I was thinking that. I thought that sounds like the policy is written by the nun who ran my <laughs> high school. Can they get hold of porn, though? Do they get porn magazines? Uh, or naughty, The naughty boys can. Yeah. But no, 
it's not accessible because then that again causes issues. Corrective services like to think that there's none of that those shenanigans, but absolutely, there's phones, there's laptops, there's USBs, and all that sort of stuff's in there. That's yeah. it. Surely, if you can get hold of heroin and you can get a phone, exactly. Surely you can get a photo <laughs> yeah. of a lady's boobs. That's it. Look, it, it is part of the punishment, I guess. What I find frustrating is, and and upsetting, I think, because I've I've got a loved one in there, is that I see it as the courts have, have punished you to a life sentence, basically, of, of your freedom is gone. That's the punishment. You're locked up. You can't leave those gates. You know, there's areas you can't leave in there within those gates. You know, you've got you've got these rules that you got to work. But then there's extra punishments. You know, like because you're a crim, you know, the screws abuse you verbally. Um, they call them names. They they dehumanise them by calling them their surname instead of like, you know, Bill. You know, and these things about like the visits. Oh, you can't kiss each other. You know, I'm like, well, where was that stipulated in? The punishment and look, absolutely, the victims' families might go. Well, that's fair enough. You know, there's people in there, you know, who might have got caught with, you know, a personal amount of illicit drug. You know, do they deserve that? Because the same rule applies to them. You know, and you kind of think, how is that? I don't think it's your job to instill more punishment than what the courts punish them for. So that that's upsetting at times. Yeah, and it does seem detrimental, doesn't it? it does seem to create worse human beings. It does, and that's that's all prisons do. From my experience, not being in there, and I can see there's a lot of people in there that absolutely need to be there and really are just evil people who can't control their behaviour. Um, and that's probably where they, sh- that's absolutely where they should be. But geez, there's a lot of people like John, like he should be there for what he's done. But I'm not trying to preach or anything because, you know, I felt exactly the same way before I got involved. But there's people in there that are just normal people who did a stupid and tragic thing, but it wasn't an evil thing, if that makes sense. It was it was them making a really stupid decision that's blown up. They're paying for it now, but they are just, it, it could be me. Like there's people in there who've killed people by accident for texting people while they're driving. Yes. And I mean, that could be me. But the reason they're in jail is to remind the rest of us not to text while we're driving. Exactly. Yeah. 100%. And the reason that John's there is to remind the rest of us not to do things like, you know, not to think, oh, God, I'll take up drug dealing again because the cost of living crisis is is crippling my family and, you know, to get sucked into that that situation. But you're right. But then there are other people who have personality disorders and all, all of those things that mean that they just don't get how to live in our society, you know. That's a whole other issue and it is it is weird that they're in the same place together. Can you tell us about people that he is has been housed with over these years, situations that he has witnessed? So he's he is so blasé about things uh, and an example is he was walking up to visits, I was waiting in visits and there was a, shall we say, a melee between a, a cultural gang that was quite violent in the walkway outside visits. It was, I don't know if it's tear gas or whatever sort of gas they use. So these guys were getting stuck in, you know, the, the officers all had to run. Like, I found it so traumatic. I'm like, oh my God, this is full on. And and he walked in, I'm like, are you going to tell me about what happened? He's like, what are you talking about? Well, that's another thing that blokes talk about who've been through the boys' home or the, the youth corrections. 
and then prison is that the constancy of violence that the you know that you you just know violence is just always around the corner that you're just so hyper vigilant and that that's another thing that takes a lot of getting used to when you get out of jail is that you're so used to having to defend yourself at any second or at least dodge violence at any second exactly yeah there's a lot of dodging yeah yeah and he's t- he's told stories of yeah, fights breaking out at tables that he's at, and there's you know, five or six guys just finishing their dinner while these two guys shank each other. You know, and I'm just that for me sounds like I would need trauma counselling from that. I just well, he probably will, babe. He probably yeah, absolutely. The fact he's so blasé about it is concerning. Yeah, so he's see, he's seen lots of things. Like he's seen um quite violent things. He's been housed with with those people, and I, I wouldn't even know their names to tell you to be honest. But you know, they've hacked their neighbours up with axes and in psychotic episodes and a lot of mentally unwell people are in prison. That's sad because, I mean, if it's one thing I've learned is that you're not going to get help for your mental health (laughs) while you're in prison. You're not, but you will be medicated and you will, like a lot of people talk about the fact that it's the first time they've taken medication regularly is in jail. Yeah, good point. You know, and the first time they've had, you know, regular meals, regular sleep patterns. And the statistics are, I think it's like 70% of our prison population, male prison population, has diagnosed mental illness. So that's significant. It is a lot. And a lot of those, I reckon, will, and he talks a lot about the amount of people in there on drug charges. If there was an avenue to rectify that, your prison population would be next to nil. So, I mean, those people are revolving. Like, he will see the same people go out and he gets annoyed because he's like you're out but it is just drugs you know because it's the cycle of of what it is yeah the drugs in there are rampant I don't know well I do know how they get in because there's a minute amount getting in through visits probably but mostly through staff right absolutely yep and like you were talking about before there's you know he's been housed with people who are hooking up with (laughs) with screws in laundry cupboards and things like that. And I I mean, you know, there'd be some buffed up dudes in there. I get it, you know, but there's a lot of women in there who are very glammed and it just makes me think what's, what's going on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I know that's judgy. Well, I do, but then also I hear from screws who will say, you know, that they have never indulged themselves, but they will say, look, you're in an environment where yes, there are men, you're surrounded by men. Some of them are not interested, are abusive and, you know, all of that and violent and scary, but some of them are young, buff and are very manipulative people. And that's why they're there. Yep. hundred percent. And they will be a lot of the time, you know, oh, look, they're probably doing it because they, you know, want to get their end wet, you know, as crass as that is. But then there is a, a lot of them will be using them for the old drug supply. You know, they'll be, though, I love you. You're just, you know, you're the love of my life. You know, just this once. So it is, a, it can be a dangerous place for women getting involved. Look, and look, John has stories too about screws le- like leaving, quitting the job and going on to have marriages with inmates when they get out. So it's not all, co- you know, controversy and filth and stuff. It, it can be true love, I suppose. And that's, and that's just the nature of humans. Tell me, what, what do you think people think of the two of you? Who do you think people think you are? I'd like to think that they think I'm an adult who can make my own decisions. However, 
a lot of them will think that I'm a sucker, uh, desperate, perhaps a little naive even. I think that's what a lot of them think because that's usually what you get peppered with first is how do you, does he hit you up for money? Does he, you know, what's he writing in his letters, you know? Um, you know, does he, has he hit you up for a house, for a parole house, stuff, you know, stuff like that. That's the usual questions. And I'm like, I've been, you know, I'm a 40 odd year old woman. I think I'm pretty intelligent. But also similarly with John, like people, you know, I'm sure he's aware and you're aware of who people think he is. Yep. Yep. And I felt would have asked those same questions a hundred percent. And when you think of a murderer, you think of Hannibal Lecter, Jeffrey, you're Jeffrey Darmers. Particularly double murder. You think, exactly. oh, is he a serial killer, this bloke? That's right. So people kind of put these labels on on people and I get it because until you know the, the story, people just brush over and go, oh, murder. You know, he's a monster. He's an axe-wielding animal. I think that's just normal until you kind of delve into it. So I don't kind of really hold it against them if they feel that way or if they have those concerns. It's It's pretty normal. My parents have accepted it, but they're used to my... Hair, they call it harebrain activities. It's just like, oh, my God, what's she doing? Oh, mur- murdering a double murderer. Okay, cool. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so they're kind of in that mindset of like you're an adult. As long as you're safe, as long as their grandson's safe, they go with it. And they're good friends with him now. You know, they they chat up. They call him the inmate. You know, you go to the pen today to see the inmate. So, you know, there's a bit of a relationship building there. Uh, other family members, not so much. I've been estranged from my sister as a result. I've cried that many times. I've been angry that many times. I've spent so many lonely nights here going, you know, what am I doing? But I fell in love with him through the same way that you'd fall in love with anybody. You get to know them. You spend time with them. You share the same values. They support you, support them. He's been, this is probably another indictment on the male population, but he's been an amazing role model well we call him our son (laughs) we call him daddy because that's what my son calls him daddy in his usual teenage kind of uh prose but he um (laughs) so they have a great relationship and you know john is his guide on how to be a man as opposed to his actual father so you know that that was a big concern for me at the start you know how how will this would impact my son and it's only been positive and does he tell his friends how much does he tell his friends absolutely everything it's like a bit of a badge of honour and it's probably the difference between boys and girls. Like, you know, girls probably wouldn't – boys have a different relationship with their dads, I think, than girls. Girls absolutely, like, idolise their fathers, I think, whereas boys are bros. An example, my son's just got a, his first girlfriend, you know, he's 13. So he's kind of guiding him through – you know, he got dumped and so John's been guiding him through, you know, how to handle that like a man instead of, go, you know, texting her and telling her that she's a – the worst person he's ever met, you know, it's better. It's a good avenue for him to have those chats. Whereas with me, I'm I'm like, oh my God, you've got a girlfriend, you know, and I'm probably a little bit too emotional. So I'm glad that he's, he's got that. And geez, he, sometimes I think he's a little bit too much of an overshare. He goes to a private school and one of the girls that's in his class, they were telling each other about what their dads do for a living. And oh, my dad's a correctional officer and and he's going, can you let my stepdad out of jail? <laughs> Look, and I, I can't speak for every prison wife, but because I wasn't involved in that initial, the whole trauma, I suppose we'll call it, 
of the, the event and all that, it's much easier for me to talk about it. Whereas my girlfriends, like it's so traumatic, like they get anxiety attacks. And so then their children kind of, that rubs off a little bit, you know, that we don't talk about it and we, you know, we just tell everyone dad's at work. And whereas I've, you know, I don't have that shame attached to it. So that's probably rubbed off on on my son a little bit. Yeah, I, I know that there'll be, yeah, women whose husbands, who were with their husbands and went through all of that and those kids are like, believe me, it's not that cool when you live through it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I say I'm lucky in that sense. They think the world of each other, which is great. I don't take him in a lot because it is quite an anxiety-inducing experience, just getting through the whole, you know, I don't want him to sort of think it's normal either that, that that's kind of where you hang out on the weekend. So, you know, we go in and then they have they have their bro time and I, I'm just there as the chauffeur, really. It's an ideal outcome for me because I think it would have been an absolute deal breaker if that had have panned out any differently as far as that relationship went, um, like any single bum. And again, it wouldn't necessarily matter that he was in jail. <laughs> he could have been out of jail and been a, and not had a relationship and it wouldn't have been on. So what advice would you give to if any woman is currently or would consider like starting a pen pal relationship and then say maybe it starts to develop, what advice would you give to women? Um, my first piece of advice was would be to make sure that you are secure in yourself first. So if you are somebody who need, is going to need somebody in your life to be physically there, don't go there. Like I'm the biggest hornbag you'll ever meet. But I knew for the right man, that's a no-brainer. Like I can put that to the side and we can work on other ways of doing that, of having that intimacy. But So that's the first bit. Don't go into it if you need a man to bolster who you are. It's it's just going to be tears every day. And the second bit is just be careful. Don't go in with all love and sunshine because, you know, although, you know, fingers crossed John and I, maybe a, a small exception to the rule a lot of them are a lot of the boys in there are desperate mm. they've got no money they've got no support that's why they're there and you show interest they'll latch onto that and they will use you for what they can get so that can happen in any walk of life I think probably just more so because your pool of guys here is by the very nature of where they are desperate for Support, friendship, money, parole house, attention, affection. When they have no intention, when they come out of living the good life <laughs> and having babies and going to work every day, they've got intentions of coming out, getting back on the gear and living the life that, they, that they've lived. Yeah, and I think you need to be mature. Oh my God, if I was 20 and doing this, I would be, I would have lost my mind. So there has to be a level of maturity to say that you, you acknowledge that when they come out, that it's not going to be just slipping into everyday life. You know, he's going to be a bit messed up for a while, you know, and he's going to need you to support him even when he's out. Um, and there's going to be the realities of life is he's not going to be able to get a job particularly easily. You are going to get branded with, oh, that's some, the murderers. I was just thinking, though, that, you know, so many blokes get out of jail after a long stretch and the hardest part is just readjusting back to life. 
just getting your head around the world now and how it works and smartphones and going to Centrelink. You can't even go to Centrelink anymore. You've got to sit on the phone. No. Or get onto MyGov. So all those things, but at least with your support, I guess, and, you know, in five and a bit years, if he gets parole, at least he's got someone on the outside who can, you know, you can be encouraging and saying, no, I know how to do that. Don't don't worry. <laughs> I know how to get on my guff. I know how to. <laughs> yeah, I'm an expert. Don't worry. Yeah, like so many blokes just don't know how to do any of that. And I think that's how they end up back inside so fast. Oh, it is 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's true. Like when John gets home, it's it's going to be, and it's funny, one of one of my bosses at work the other day, because he's a bit like you, Michelle, like I, I just told him and he's like, what, what did he do? Oh, my God. You know, asking all the questions. And <laughs> he sort of said, you know, how do you guys know that when he gets home, you're going to be able to live with each other? Because that's kind of the biggest part of being together. And I I do think about that. And when, by the time he gets home, he would have been, well, let's say he gets out in five years. He would have been on his own for 20 years. You know, very routine, stainless steel, everything, um, same clothes every day. And I would have been on my own physically for f- about 15 years. And I, my answer to, to my boss was, we are just so conscious that that's going to be something we have to work through. Like when we're not under this belief that he's going to come home and we're all going to be happy families and he's going to be cooking dinner and he's not going to be having a meltdown in the lounge room about the noise and, mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, about, you know, the bright lights of our hometown. But we're kind of not naive to that. And the thing that blokes have most often mentioned to me about first getting out of jail is people smiling at them in the street, strangers smiling at them, that that freaks them out. Isn't that sad? Oh, it is a little bit. Yeah, I do, we do. We joke because we sort of say when we go to Coles, because they've got such a crappy diet and he, we joke about when he goes to Coles for the first time, he's just going to be in, he's going to be overwhelmed. He'll be in the, you know, ice cream aisle in the fetal position, just <laughs> overwhelmed like we'll have a trolley full of stuff that he just wants to eat yeah so I mean that's that's a whole other thing that we're looking forward to more than anything because you know we can finally start our life but yeah if you're hitting up the old jail pen pal system just be careful and safe and secure in yourself ask the tough questions you know don't let them all be lovey-dovey oh I'm gonna love you and we're gonna have babies when we get out you know Ask the questions. What What are you doing to make sure that when you get out, things are going to be better or things aren't going to go back to how they were or whatever the situation is? And always be wary of anyone who is too fast, I reckon, who's love bombing. Absolutely. Who's jumping in too quick. The two red flags are love bombing and hitting you up for money. Yeah. John's never hit me up for money. I do send him cash so he can pay, ring me often because mm. they are expensive but uh, he's never once asked for cash so that's a, for me that's a another comfort that I don't have to worry about that that's the reason he's hanging out with me well I look so forward to catching up with you guys when, when he gets parole when he gets parole fingers crossed only five years yes three years down for me so five years is just another one I've done plus a little bit more so we'll we'll get there Thank you to our guest, Ashley. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 
or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.